Hello, and welcome to another edition of S'mores by Fireside. As always, you can watch all of these episodes at meetfireside.com forward slash s'mores, or you can download in podcast form from wherever you like to get your podcasts. Today, I'm utterly delighted to be joined by Pam. Pam, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Hello, Dex. Uh, Pam Moss, and I am a estate planning attorney in Colorado, and I help people with wills and trusts and putting comprehensive legal documents in place to protect their loved ones. Why did you get into that? Was it what you wanted to do when you started down the path of law, or did this find you? It found me. My background is actually as an engineer. I am the first lawyer in my family. So I will say my family was not super pumped when I said I was going to become a lawyer. They had had bad experiences with lawyers. They didn't trust lawyers. So I do take that to heart when I work with my clients. I feel like a lot of people feel that way. They just feel uncomfortable with lawyers and I want people to feel comfortable. So yeah, I did an internship at a large firm my first summer and then worked at the DA's office the rest of law school and started off as a DA, deputy district attorney in court every day up in uh, Boulder, Colorado. What's the reality of working in a DA office? I mean, I think we probably all have some perceptions of it, but probably very few of us actually understand what that's like. It's exactly like law and order. (laughs) (laughs) That washed out 80 celebrities all walking around the place uh, doing investigations. Yeah, walking around doing about Yeah, I was really lucky. The 20th Boulder DA's office is really committed to kind of not over-criminalizing and giving people second chances and intervening when you need to, but also it's not perceived as a kind of unjust, I would say. So I had a lot of great, great mentors. I, you know, but yeah, the first day on the job, they sent me to a homicide crime scene with a deceased person on the ground and showed me the blood spatter and uh, went to the autopsy. And that was my first day as a district attorney. (laughs) Now, was that required as a district attorney or were they just trying to shock the new person? (laughs) I think every DA's office is different. I think that my DA's office very much had, they wanted us to have a connection with families and they wanted us to realize the, the nature or the severity of what happened. And if we had to go to trial, which we went to trial a lot, they wanted us to be able to have observed everything that happened as much as we could, especially in serious cases, so that we could say to a jury, this is what it looked like and really have that expertise to present the case. It wasn't much of a (laughs) trying to shock the new person, but it was definitely, you know, a tense experience kind of right out of the gate. And yeah, they, I was in court right off the bat every day with a box of files and and a judge and an opposing attorney and right out of television. So outwardly, you are a very positive person. Did you find it okay to deal with the difficult topics you were dealing with and and deal with the death and, and so on? Yeah. So I guess I am very positive. One of my passions is helping survivors of domestic violence and gender violence and sexual assault and child sex abuse. And so I think that was something that really drove me just connecting with survivors, helping them kind of be that voice and helping them rebuild their lives. But I definitely think there is a huge weight to kind of living in that narrative and helping people through it. So I really quickly learned the importance of self-care and taking care of myself. Um, You don't really learn that in law school, but after a few weeks of living in a 
you know, multi-child sex abuse victim trial, it's, it's intense, you know, and you're grateful for the opportunity to help people, but it does take a toll for sure. sure. What does that self-care practice look like? Whatever of it you're comfortable sharing. Oh, <laughs> so in the beginning, it was no self-care, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, luckily, I had friends that were at the same time that I was in law school, were going through the school of psychiatry or the school of counseling or social work. Mm-hmm. And so I started just getting curious and talking to them. But one of my good friends who's a social worker gave me advice that I still use to, the day, to this day, which is self-care isn't so much about doing like a massive thing, right? Like a lot of times when we think about self-care, we think of a big vacation to the mountains or to the beach or something big. And it's really about kind of those everyday things that you enjoy. She kind of explained it to me, like building that bank up inside you. If a walk makes you feel good, if listening to some music feels good, that if you really take the time to build that in throughout the day, when something intense happens, it really takes that edge off and you're less likely to kind of bottle up all those, those mm. unprocessed emotions. So mm. I have wrestled back and forth with trying to have a meditation habit. A few years ago, I did some work with a wonderful cognitive behavioral therapist mm. and learned about that stuff. And for a little while, I think I was quite good at it. And then it all slipped and fell away. Of course, as time got busy, I've been trying to relearn that. And I really like the waking up app and I'm quite new to it. I'm going through the introductory classes. But one of the things that talks about is exactly what you're saying, which is find that thing that can take the edge off at any given moment. So I'm, I don't know, I'm only eight or nine lessons into the introductory one on that one, but already I can find that by repeating slight moments from a 10 minute meditation during the day and just breathing in a particular way, it can really actually bring the pulse rate down quite dramatically fast. So I'm I'm a big believer in that it's the small things, not the big things. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's really true. So there you were in the DA office, solving crimes, putting bad guys in jail. And now what was the transition to what you do today? Yeah. So I saw this pattern where people would be, something would happen. So an accident or some type of crime or car accident. And people would, especially young families, but older families, they would have no legal documents in place. And so then their loved ones would be in the court process, the probate process Mm. for years. And, you know, it'd be families I'd work with who in the criminal side were really united. And then this probate side came up and it lasted two years. And suddenly you had young children who we didn't know who the guardians were going to be. Just a lot of heartbreaking things that could have been totally avoided if people had legal plans in place. So that's really what kind of sparked the desire to think about ways to help people to avoid having to go to court instead of being a lawyer. (laughs) And so kind of taking my experience in the courtroom and helping people set up their families to prevent some of the ongoing conflict and risk that comes with having to go through a court process when someone passes away or is incapacitated. Not, it's not a pleasant experience in any, in any shape or form, that's for sure. But think back to when you were starting that business then. So when you were getting that idea and putting the, the first steps in place, were you still working at the DA's office or was there a delineation where you stopped and then you started this? Yeah, so in between I went and worked for a larger firm. So after the DA's office, I went and worked at a larger firm and really just to gain more experience in the civil side, working with people directly. And then, yeah, there was kind of a period of time where I knew I wanted to go out on my own and then just kind of putting everything 
in place to actually make the leap. So <laughs> was it a mentally for you, was it a big difficult leap or did you know you were ready and this is what you were going to do? I've always been, I would say, or I guess for a long time I've been entrepreneurial. So I've always had kind of side hustles, <laughs> so mm-hmm. to speak, but then I had my legal job to fall back on. And yeah, so it was a big requirement emotional energy requirement of me to take the leap and really get past that initial fear of potential failure, of financial failure, and just really kind of have that confidence to move out on my own. Right. Does the desire to be entrepreneurial come from any sort of family background or other source? Or is it just something you think you were born with? I don't know. That's a good question. I think, you know, my dad's an engineer, my mom's a teacher. So kind of that appreciation and thirst for knowledge and curiosity was has always been fostered by them and fostered in my life but my dad was you know career large engineering companies so yeah so i think it's kind of a mix of self you know when i graduated from engineering school kind of the dot com boom had just it was that first dot com burst into in 2004 and so like in phoenix where i grew up like Every dot com had closed down, all the (laughs) buildings were empty. It was like a major recession. So there wasn't really opportunity at that point to get into the entrepreneurial world. But yeah, so I think it's probably a mix of just kind of that thirst for knowledge and the curiosity from the beginning. I remember in that bus walking through San Francisco, I was part of a company in the UK and we were acquiring the assets of a company in, in San Francisco that had gone through that bust. And I was walking down Market Street and the lady I was with was the lady who'd founded this company. And she stopped and she chatted to this this guy that was homeless and was asking for money on the streets. And she went in a person, gave him almost $400. And I said to her, well, that's that's firstly deeply generous of you, but um, I'm just curious, like, do you know him? And she said, up until six weeks ago, he was on my engineering team. He was sleeping under the desk full time because he wanted to use the money he'd have spent on rent to buy more stock in our company because he believed in it so much. And of course, then when the bust happened, I mean, that, that is the effect it had on, on so many people's, um, so many people's lives. Terrible time. That entrepreneurial desire is fascinating for me. A lot of people we talk to on these smalls chats have some sort of family experience that uh, that means they, they want to replicate that because they like how it looks. So it's interesting to me that you don't necessarily have that background and it was just this, this curiosity desire. Do you feel like law is unique in that unless you go out on your own, you're not going to find that innovation or excitement in the big firm? I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the law. People do find excitement and opportunities at larger firms. I know people who are very happy, so I don't want to rag. (laughs) I don't want to downplay it. But yeah, I think there are, in a lot of ways, the legal field from a gender equity is still pretty behind in the times. Mm -hmm. So there is a big movement. The vast majority of women leave the legal profession within the first 10 years. And a lot of that is because of this kind of old school model of billable hours and working So the women that don't leave a lot of times start their own law firms. So it's kind of a newer, I don't know how much it's newer, but it's a kind of a great option for women who want to blaze their own trail and and like practicing and don't necessarily want to continue in the old school model. There's pros and cons, of course, of being in big firm versus having your own business. And you've shared on social media that you're currently pregnant. 
Do you have a thought about that when you think about gender in your profession? You obviously now have to plan for the continuity of your business as you go through that kind of pregnancy and and have the child. Do you wish you were at a bigger firm or do you think that would be even worse and it would make it harder and you'd be pushed to the side? What's the thinking at the moment? One of my big motivators to start my firm was we were trying to get pregnant and I didn't feel like I could have the type of life I saw for the foreseeable future Mm. at the firm with having a child. So for me, it was a big, it was kind of that big motivator. And then as soon as I got pregnant and I had my own firm, I was like, oh, what did I do? (laughs) You know, I don't have that safety net of being able to take paid maternity leave. And yeah, kind of in that situation where we do rely a lot on my income and kind of trying to negotiate and kind of figure out, well, my, it's like taking a toll on my body and um, of like, okay, like how much do I need to bring in financially to be able to take a little bit of time off? How much time realistically do I need to take off? What kind of balance do I have? But so far it's, I feel like, I mean, I guess kind of one silver lining of COVID for me is moving to virtual practice has been really helpful for me. I meet with clients for estate planning on Zoom, like we're on right now, and it's gone really well. My clients love it. They love the convenience. I've been helping lots of people. And so it's been really helpful being pregnant and being able to meet with clients (laughs) because, you know, I'm not on my feet and Mm kind of going all around town. So yeah. That's interesting to hear. I think a lot of businesses have learned during this period that actually we can do so much more remote than I think people ever thought. The number of clients I've talked to over the years who have said, well, our our business, it doesn't work remote. Everybody has to be here in person. I think this extended period of shelter in place has shattered those delusions. So it's interesting to hear that your business continues as large. Are there any downsides to it? Do you have certain clients that you think are not going to work with you until they can meet in person? I haven't seen that yet. I've heard that from other lawyers, but I haven't. I think people have been more motivated to get their estate plans in place during this time. And actually right before COVID, I made a job offer for a full-time new employee. So I just like made that investment. So she, she started and like the next week, it was like the beginning of the COVID. I'm like, wow, I just hired someone. You know how it is when you're kind of expanding your team. And then I was about to enlarge my office. So I have a lease on an office right now that I'm not using. And I was going to double the size of my office, bringing her in and potentially bringing another person in. And I put that on hold (laughs) for now. And yeah, my paralegal and I, I have some other people who work remotely too, who've been supporting me, but my full-time paralegal and I were just talking, Hey, maybe we keep this going like for the rest of the year. We really like it. Our clients seem to like it. And it's going to be kind of just gauging if our clients still enjoy it this time next year, meeting with us virtually. Right. I am curious about the, there's a big generational difference in how people want to communicate with people. What is your typical age group of customer? Yeah. So I wondered the same thing and I have baby boomers. So I have people who are much older. I'll be 38 when my baby comes in September. And um, so I have people in their 30s and 40s. And then I have people 60, 70, 80 and on up. So a lot of my older clients like the idea that I'm the same age as their children because they want someone to be there when they pass away to help kind of guide their children through the transfer of their legacy. But 
most of my clients have, because everyone's doing Zoom with their family, have been very comfortable. I've been worried about the technological issues and even my my kind of the quote unquote like older generation who are technically unsavvy, they're really savvy like because they've been doing Zoom happy hours with their family members and they've gotten to know the technology. And But yeah, I, I have worried about that idea. That's an interesting point. I wonder if there've been many people in your industry prior who've tried this and it hasn't worked, but this has now worked because people have been forced into it. That, that's interesting. Have you seen any generational or age groups want to work with you more because the pandemic has made them feel like the trust and the will is, is suddenly more urgent? Yeah, I have had that. And I have had people who maybe have engaged with me a year ago as far as went to one of my live events or had watched, read a blog post and now with everything going on, have been more motivated to get things in order and get things in place, just having to kind of contemplate Really, the idea that we all contemplate is if something were to happen to us, would our loved ones be okay? What would happen? And so, yeah, I've seen an increase in people being motivated to get things in place. And I think it's been helpful. It's been inspiring because it is really nice to work with people who really care a lot about protecting their loved ones and and just knowing, I think, especially right now, because we have so many things we can't control. And to be able to give someone that sense of control right now of like, okay, there's so much we can't control, but here's one piece you can't control and mm. get something in place. That makes me kind of feel good about what I do and, and have such a good interaction. Mm. That's lovely. I wonder, I do a lot of work, research work into the different generations. You know, people throw around boomers versus millennials and so on. And there's some fun in that, but I think also there is a lot of important generalizations and trends we can take from it. And I think the millennial cohort is probably the most misunderstood. They're from 25 years old to 40 40 years old now. They will inherit more wealth than any generation that's gone before. They are the sandwich generation more and more where they're looking after their parents as they're looking after their children financially. One thing that intrigues me though is we're seeing evidence that certainly in the coastal states, we have gone through this period of transition where not only is the female of the household the decision maker on so much, but is now also transitioning to be the primary breadwinner. And nations haven't really seen that since World War II. And of course, they were the primary breadwinner for very different reasons then at the time. Do you see that more? Do you feel like there are more and more families or individuals you work with, where in the past, as recent as five, 10 years ago, it might have been the couple needs to decide and there's this kind of more of a check-in on some of the financial and legal matters with the husband. And now is it much more, actually the woman in the household is just going to do all this shit because she believes in it. She's passionate about it and she doesn't need anyone's permission. Yeah. That's an interesting point. So I do do all my planning. If people are married, I do planning with the couple together and I don't make any exceptions to that. As a married couple, you owe a fiduciary duty to each other. And of course they have the wave, the inherent conflict of working together. They can always get a separate attorney, but I can't advise someone (laughs) about how to hide assets from their partner and things like that. So the couples I work with are kind of, are consenting to work together. And so, but I do see a difference, right? I do have situations where the women reach out to me. I do have situations where the male reaches out to me. It's interesting. 
I think because my background is, is very much in women empowerment, like in engineering school, I was the president of the Society of Women Engineers. And now as a lawyer, I'm in the women-owned law firm group of women-owned law firms. I'm always involved with groups to help elevate women. So I think I attract a lot of women <laughs> to mm-hmm. my, so I probably see more of that than maybe someone else wouldn't of more women coming. But for the most part, the people I'm attracting are pretty collaborative. I think there's always, there sometimes is, I guess I would say a more dominant person in the conversation, but I see my role as making everybody <laughs> come to a consensus. And so I'm always checking in, especially with a quieter partner, whether, and I have a lot of same sex couples I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, too. So um, I have a lot of couples that are both women and both men. And so I'm always kind of trying to be that person that has both people feel comfortable to speak up. Do you find yourself having to be a therapist or marriage guidance counselor in a lot of your conversations with couples? Yeah. I mean, there is, you know, it's counselor at law. I think there is element of that. Sometimes people do get a little opinionated and their feathers, you know, get ruffled. And so I'm always trying to kind of make that, I would say my whole process is aimed to be a process that brings people together. Mm. And so when I start to sense that coming up, I kind of bring it back to to that of like, okay, let's look at the big picture. You, you both agree about this. Where can we go with that? And, but yeah, with some couples more than others, I have to play that dance of bringing it back. But I would say the vast majority of my couples, if they're coming to me for it, they tend to <laughs> get along very well. They want to plan for their future together. They both, you know, a lot of them have children. They want to plan for their children. So is children, do you think the biggest motivator why people do a will and a trust? It is a big motivator. I have a lot of single clients right now who are business owners, mm. who don't aren't married and don't have children. And so they really care a lot, a lot as well. If they were ever incapacitated, who would make their decisions, who would have access to their money. I would say children is a great motivator, but but having your health decisions made is also a big motivator. Having someone to help you if you are in that situation is a good motivator. Mm-hmm. And really just autonomy, being able to make the decisions instead of having a court make your decisions yeah. is, I think, the ultimate motivator for most of the people I see. I don't think people realize how miserable the court process is. I, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but I do bring up CASA uh, as much as I can because I want people to be aware of it, the child uh, court-appointed special advocates. And I've observed several days in court with them as they help the children. And that was an eye-opener to me. I had no idea how, uh, how awful that experience can be for everybody involved. I think TV does give a very fake picture of it and, and almost glamorizes it rather than, uh, than shows the, God, the just awful nature of it, really. I wonder if that's a way to get people over their apathy of doing a will and, and help them understand that they need to do something to avoid that. Yeah. I mean, I try not to fear market, right? So <laughs> it's kind of a difficult balance with a topic like this because I'm always asking myself, I'm like, is this fear? But no, I do think that that is a big motivator for people is kind of just knowing the truth and that's of what would happen if something were to happen to them, what the court process would really look like for their loved ones. Okay, so let's talk about your business for a little bit. So how do you have your business set up? You said you just took somebody on. Was that your first full-time person? So I've had a few people helping me part-time. So when okay. I first went on, I have a, I had a part-time paralegal helping me who, she actually telecommutes from Costa Rica, which nice is, person. she's an American paralegal who's worked at a 
large estate planning law firm for many years and then now lives in Costa Rica and a few estate planning lawyers rec- recommended her. So I started working with her, helping me part-time. A social worker I know helped with some of my intakes. Mm-hmm. Then another paralegal started helping me part-time. And then, um, yeah, a lot of trying to automate things and kind of create systems as well in the background to kind of help be able to increase my volume. So what sort of owner are you? Are you the sort of person who you've gone and brought in the additional part-time or full-time resource to help you manage the significant demand you have? Or are you more of an owner where actually you like to have some resource in place before that growth phase so that you're not overwhelmed at any point? Yeah. So I work with a business coach, luckily. (laughs) So at the beginning of last year, I was trying to do around six clients a month. By January, I was up to 10 clients a month. And then my March was looking at closer to 18. So I wanted to wait till I had the money in the bank to pay the person. And my business coach is like, you need to hire someone now. Like you're not going to be able to serve this volume on your own. So yeah, I was nudged into being the owner who made the jump. And right when I made that jump is when COVID hit. So I was like having, I had just hired someone and COVID hit and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the worst decision I could have made. But I leaned into it and and, um, it's worked out well. And I've had, I'm really glad I made the decision to make the leap and I wouldn't be able to handle the volume this month and next month without it. When you say you work with new clients, that's, uh, and you gave those numbers, that's new clients coming in in a month, correct? Mm -hmm. Do you tend to find that the clients you work with and what they're trying to do, are they in and out within a month period? Or do you have a lot of them where actually you're constantly building the number of clients you have on the books at any time because they stay around for a long period of time? So I do do some litigation still. So I have some personal injury clients that I'm not actively trying to grow that practice area right now, but I will take on cases. So I didn't include that in the number, but I have been taking on cases in that area. And so those clients, just by the nature of a personal injury case, when you think of like a car accident or slip and fall, those take, you take on the case and then they usually take two to three years to resolve. And during that time, you have different periods of high and low. And then with the estate planning side, normally I'm, I'm working with clients for a three month period, sometimes four months to get their everything in place. And then kind of being an ongoing as needed once a year, every three years. So it's not as much ongoing support. Is that one year and three year checking something you put in place to potentially increase the value of each customer you bring in? Or is that just a natural cadence when people generally need something extra? So I include with all of my plans that I work with people that every three years I'm checking in with them and kind of providing some included services to give them that additional peace of mind that down the road as things come up, that they're going to have that continuity, that they're going to have the updates they need. I would say in general, people tend to reach out to me between one and three years. If someone has a very, so my clients that are business owners who are having a lot of fluid asset changes. So I have clients who, you know, are buying and selling multiple businesses or they're buying and selling multiple assets or they're growing their family those types, then they're kind of reaching out to me more frequently and I'm working with their team. So I'm checking in with their CPA and their financial advisor and I'm part of that 
conversation every year. I would say my typical client who works, owns their one business or works for someone, they're not really having to check in with me as frequently. Okay. That's interesting. And so you mentioned your business coach. What led you to get a business coach and how did you choose them? Yeah. So I'm an athlete as well. So I grew up, I do competitive fitness competitions when I'm not pregnant. (laughs) So I've always used coach, like, I guess that idea of having a coach has been kind of baked into my life and I see a lot of value. So that's what really kind of led me to want to have a coach for the transition is really wanting to have some guidance and support and not let my fears kind of consume me, but also to just stay on track and kind of make the best, I guess, leverage everything as well as I can. And then did that answer that question? I, I am curious though. So given you had a background of working with a coach through sport, I understand then why that felt more natural to you than I think for a lot of people who first ever interact with a coach when, when they're older and they're doing their careers. Did that give you then a good understanding of what you wanted in a coach? And so when you were choosing a business coach, were there certain things that you knew you wanted or for them maybe to have a certain type of personality or way of working? Yeah. So kind of in my athletic endeavors, I noticed how much my mindset played a role in my achievements and how much I needed kind of coaching around my mind Mm -hmm. to move to different levels. And so that had led me to, before I hired a business coach to hire a life coach and really try to focus on, I guess, breaking down some of those barriers or those things that kind of get in the way. And so I want, when I was looking for a business coach, I wanted someone who didn't want to just, I call it the action line, but didn't just want to give me tools and items to do, but really wanted to kind of focus on where my thinking was and what was driving my decisions and kind of the bigger picture, why. And, you know, I didn't want to build a business that was just another form of the type of job I already had, where I was working from like... The business wasn't working for me. I was, you know, working long hours. Like I didn't want to create even a, like just another version of it, but being, oh. it didn't make sense. I didn't want to be a slave to my business. And I wanted my business to come from a place that really spoke to my purpose in life and also could have me give contribution and, and make me feel fulfilled and also support the lifestyle I wanted to have in my life as far as being able to spend time with my family, grow my family, have a child, those kinds of things. Is it working? Is the coach working? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. It's really worked really well. So I'm, and I guess I have a business coach and I was working with a life coach. So I guess I had two going. I need all the coaches. <laughs> but um, my life coach had warned me, like, once you make the switch, like your brain will literally like switch to survival mode and feel like you're like trying to kill yourself. Hmm. Literally, like my first few months of starting my business, I had to sit there and like pull up the Excel spreadsheet and show my brain, you have enough money. You're not going to like end up on the street. But like, that was the fear that kept coming up to me and every morning. And if I went to my, into my day with that fear, like I wouldn't have been able to serve clients. I like, I would come off. So like graspy and needy, I wouldn't have come from a place of, you know, where I wanted to be. So that really helped me. And now I feel like I've moved past that. And now I'm in that next stage, which is growth. I've gone through the initial growth and now I'm in the 
Like, how do I scale? How do I take, bring my team larger? How do I keep everyone in my team happy? Like I'm in that kind of phase right now. I'm really intrigued to hear you say that because one of the things I realized is years ago when I started working with my CBT, I realized that I could have my conscious brain that would know to use your example, that there was enough money in the bank, for instance, so I didn't need to worry about it. And I ultimately had to visualize then my unconscious mind of, think of it almost as a child, which is I need to sit this child down once in a while and somehow communicate to it. What I continue to find difficult is the logic behind that. I really struggle with there being two parts of my mind and trying to find that connection. And I still struggle trying to find the right way to communicate with what I perceive as as being a child, because I don't know, it, it feels like that part of my brain should be able to listen more easily and be able to get it more easily and shouldn't need telling five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten times. But in reality, of course, it, it does, which is why the child analogy works for me. So that, that's interesting to hear you talk about that. So how often do you engage with your coaches? So in the beginning, so right now my like mindset coach or life coach, I speak with every two weeks. In the beginning, I was working with her every week. Mm-hmm. And then I have another business coach that I talk to once a month. So, but they both worked in concert. Like early on, for example, I had this, one of my big first events, it was a Wine and Wills event. I invited everybody to come. There were supposed to be like 20 people there. And like two days before the event, I got this call that the venue had lost their liquor license. And so my big wine and wills event was not going to be able to have wine of it. So I'm like trying to figure out what to do. And then a big snowstorm was coming in, in Denver and it's like the fall and everything going wrong. Right. And so I like called my coach. I'm like, you know, I just need to cancel this event. He's like, you're going to have it. Even if only three people attend or one person attend, you're going to have the best, you're going to give that best presentation to one person. And I'm like, okay. And so I did it and 14 people came. I gave everyone gift cards for the wine. They were really happy. They all, and it was great. Like I got 14, my 14 first clients came out of that meeting. It was enough startup capital to invest in some additional stuff. If I hadn't like had that coach to talk me down, you know, I would have delayed. So that's just one example. I don't know. The wines and wellness, um, wines and wellness, um, the wine and wills, I think is a really interesting example. How do you generally market your business? What does that look like? Are you actively involved in that yourself? Is it very event driven, for instance? Yeah. So in the beginning, because I didn't have a really large marketing budget, I really took the boots to the ground idea of just meeting with the people that I know in my network already and telling them what I'm doing, reaching out to as many people and just help as many people as I can and talk to them. So that what that realistically looked like was having lunch and coffee with everybody I knew. Hey, I'm starting my firm. Do you have any advice? Any like getting out there, sending newsletters out every week and then going to many networking events as possible and not with the idea of getting a client but with getting there, just having my confidence build of being able to practice my pitch to as many people as possible and connect with as many people as I, as possible. And so that helped. And then, yeah. And then the biggest, 
Um, I would say right now and back then, I would say it's probably like 50-50. I do events, I get referrals from former clients and from people in my network. I'm extremely active because I had no marketing budget. Now that I have more marketing budget, I do have a marketing person helping me. <laughs> she's amazing. She's Brittany. She's with Fireside, you guys. And so we've been able to really just up everything. So you mentioned networking events. Are there certain networking events that you go to regularly that you find to be particularly valuable? You know, I go to a chamber of commerce in my area event. I go to kind of some women group events. And then I'm in a BNI group, which I've probably been most helpful for growing because it's so regimented and there's such a community. Everyone shows up every week time. Everyone's committed to supporting each other. So it's just, that has been kind of really, really helpful too. So for people who don't know BNI, am I right in saying it's group of local businesses, you have a set day, set time that everybody has to show up to? Yep. And then there's one person from every practice area of, so there's one realtor, one insurance person, one lawyer of each type of one kind of, every type of business you can think of. Oh, that's interesting. Is that how you met Brittany? That is how I met Brittany. That's interesting. I actually didn't know that's how you, uh, you got connected to Fireside. That is interesting. And then you get to present, is that correct, at a BNI group? Yeah, so we, um, every meeting, two people present, and it's eight minutes each. It's really helpful because you're really shortening. <laughs> shortening down. And then each week you do a 30 second commercial for your business and you try to make it different every week. So it gives you kind of key creative juices going as far as, you know, marketing your business as well in that way. Pam, this has been great. One last question for you. For somebody who's going through that next growth phase of that business, is there one big lesson that you would share with them that you think you had to learn the hard way? I would say you got to go all in. <laughs> Just go all in and trust yourself, trust your team and kind of those, like the ruminating on that doesn't really serve your business, it doesn't clients. So the more you can do to focus on why you're there, what you're doing and your plan is, and then just have faith. Fantastic. Could you tell people please the name of your business and how they can find you? Yeah, so the name of my business is Moss Law, and they can find me at www.lifelegacyfirm.com. And I also have a podcast, The Find Pam Show, and that's at www.findpam.com. I didn't know that. I'll have to go check that out. Thanks very much for joining us, Pam. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, you can go to meetfireside.com, click on the smallest tab, watch all these episodes in video form, or you can download them in podcast form wherever you like to get your podcast. Thank you very much.